You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and I've got a great guest on the program today, David Fenton, a PR guru. So if you've ever wanted to communicate or thinking that you might ever want to communicate to people or to a wider audience, you need to listen in because uh, David is the master of communication. He's the author of the Activist Media Handbook, Lessons from 50 Years as a Progressive Agitator. Uh, David has an amazing history going back to the 60s, being involved in the um, you know movements uh, related to apartheid, nuclear arms race, climate change, death penalty issues. Uh, got a great quote from Nelson Mandela up on his website for work he did with uh, with Nelson Mandela, also the Human Rights Watch. Jane Fonda gives David a plug. So I mean. A lot of heavyweights out there that uh, have appreciated your your services to them and your great work. Uh, welcome to the program. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Matt. Glad to be here. Well, tell us a little bit about uh, your journey getting to the PR world. Uh, I I saw that you were a photographer in the '60s and and kind of. What what's your path to photography and and um, kind of give us a little bit of your background? Sure. Well, I was permanently damaged in the '60s. You know, Timothy Leary said, "Turn on, tune in, and drop out," and I did all three faithfully. And I dropped out of high school actually to my parents' great chagrin, and dropped into being a photojournalist for a radical news service called Liberation News Service, which sent material to all the hippie anti-war underground countercultural newspapers of the late 60s and that became my education in media and everything else and i got to photograph and learn from the great activists of the civil rights and the anti-war movement and the counterculture and i got to photograph a lot of great music also at the time so that's uh, how i came of age and then um I published an alternative newspaper in Ann Arbor for a few years, which is when I crossed over into doing public relations work for progressive causes. Uh, We started a third political party in Ann Arbor when they uh, lowered the voting age to 18 and we took over the city government. Our first act was to make the sale and possession of marijuana a $5 parking ticket. And then we opened free medical clinics and free daycare centers with the city's money. And I did the press releases and the radio ads, and that's how my career got launched. And then I came back to New York, and um, I worked at High Times Magazine for a year as an editor, uh, and then went to Rolling Stone and became their director of public relations and started my firm a few years after that. Well, I have to admit that I I did uh, purchase a few of the High Times uh, back in the 70s, or maybe I just read them at... uh, some uh, nefarious places where you buy paraphernalia. I can't recall which, but uh, you know, I do recall the the magazine. Now, now it was kind of cutting edge back then. Now it would be it kind was. of considered conservative at this point. That's true. Yeah. Well, it was a tough place to work. You know, people that remember it, and it used to sell five hundred thousand print copies a month. It was a big deal. Uh, it had a centerfold, the most beautiful marijuana buds of the month. So it was a tough place to work because all the dealers would descend on our 
offices hoping we would pick their buds to be in the centerfold. So tough place to work. That that's but I got involved uh, terrible. In energy. <laughs> I got involved in energy uh, and the environment for the first time uh, at Rolling Stone when I uh, met all these rock musicians who were concerned about nuclear power. And we produced the so-called No Nukes concerts in 1979 with Bruce Springsteen and Jackson Brown and Bonnie Raitt and Carly Simon and the James Taylor and the Doobie Brothers and Chaka Khan. And I know some people in the climate movement uh, are pro-nuclear. I'm not, but uh, that was when I first got involved in this issue. Um, and then I got to know uh, Dr. Jim Hansen. And uh, like I tell people, you know, maybe you don't want to hang out with climate scientists. It could ruin your life. Ah. So that's what happened to me. So, yeah. When uh, when did you first start hanging out with Dr. Jim Hansen? It was in the uh, mid to late 90s. Uh, we we publicized the first couple of IPCC reports uh, in the early and mid 90s and so the climate issue became very apparent to me at, you know, at that point. I also got to know Amory Lovins, the great uh, clean energy guru who founded the Rocky Mountain Institute, rmi.org. And so at the same time I was learning from Hansen and the climate scientists about the great dangers we faced, you know, Amory was inspiring me with all the great cost-effective solutions available to us. So that became my climate education. And about seven years ago, I sold my PR firm so I could work on climate change, media, and education full time. So that's what I'm I'm doing now. Well, uh, one of the things that you say is that uh, that essentially communicating about the climate has been one of the big failures of the left. And uh, tell us about why you think it's been a big failure. Uh, and I'd also kind of like to add in there. Um, why you think it's been a big failure in the Republican Party, which at one point in time certainly had some environmental bona fides, but for the most part have abandoned them in the last 20, 25 years for sure. Not completely, but, you know, there are still members of the Republican Party that have some uh, bona fides, but it's a shrinking number, unfortunately. It's actually a growing number, but it's too small. The, I mean, there are some great conservative climate activists and champions, but they're not well known. They don't have much visibility. So they're not affecting the debate in the conservative world very much. You know, it, that's a big couple of questions there. I, it, the conservative issue. Maybe is you could write a book on it or something. <laughs> well, there is a chapter in my book called Climate Change and Communications Failure that, that tries to dissect this. Well, let's start with the data. So only 20% of Americans know that all the climate scientists agree humans are heating the earth. Most Americans still think there's enormous scientific, dis, uh, that there's enormous disagreement among scientists when there's essentially none among published climate scientists. And why do they think that? Well, that was the propaganda strategy of the oil, coal, and gas companies for decades to confuse people to think that scientists didn't agree. They learned that from doing that in the tobacco wars when they said that doctors didn't agree that uh, cigarettes caused cancer. So they spread doubt and confusion, and they were very successful. Um, 
unfortunately, we've never reached the public with the truth about this and in in, at scale, which is a whole other issue. So two thirds of Americans report they rarely or never hear anyone talk about climate change or see it in the media. These are figures from the Yale Project on Climate Change Communications. And only 25% of Americans fit the, the Yale category of alarmed about climate change. But when you press them, it's a low priority issue for most of them. Um, so we really do not have an educated public, certainly not a mobilized one. And that's why we don't have the political will necessary to counter the corruption of our politics by the fossil fuel industry. So, you know, conservatives are confused about climate change. That's pretty easy. It comes from the Republican Party being in the throes of fossil fuel money. That's the main reason. You know, a secondary reason is that conservatives are suspicious that if they accept the science of climate change, it will mean violating their ideology and supporting massive government intervention in the economy. It actually doesn't have to mean that, but that's a whole other issue. Now, on the progressive and liberal side, you know, basically, people that uh, study the humanities, the law, and the sciences, that's liberals and progressives by and large, um, they don't like the notion of uh, marketing and advertising and simplifying and communicating. They look down on that. That's dirty and manipulative to our world. Whereas the people in the fossil fuel industry who largely go to business school, they study cognitive and marketing science and they have to use it to advance their careers to sell products and services. So they have a natural focus on propaganda and public opinion. And we have this kind of quaint notion uh, that a great ideas magically reproduce and sell themselves because of their intrinsic brilliance. The, uh, the linguist George Lakoff calls this the enlightenment fallacy, and it is a fallacy. So there's a lot of money in uh, the, the climate movement. Uh, there's many, many, many hundreds of millions of dollars, but almost none of it go, is spent to teach the public what this is uh, and what we need to do about it. And so the public really is, doesn't know. That Also, another factor, of course, is that our news media, certainly our television news media, does an atrocious job of covering the link between extreme weather and fossil fuel pollution. So, you know, most Americans, it's kind of pathetic. Um, if you ask them what causes climate change, the number one answer you'll get is the ozone hole which of course has nothing pretty much to do with it. And when you ask Americans how you solve climate change, the number one answer you'll get is reduce, reuse, and recycle, which is you know of, of limited value in this. So yeah, it's um, the, the, the public doesn't know that we're in effect under attack and have to hurry up. I mean, try finding someone who knows that the very conservative IPC scientists from Russia, Iran, and Saudi Arabia all unanimously agree that we have to cut global pollution in half in seven years to have a 50% chance of maintaining a livable climate under 1.5 degrees centigrade. So anyway, I, you know, it's kind of a mess out there. Well, uh, 
Yes, uh, definitely. I guess uh, we will be hearing more from David Fenton, the PR guru who uh, wrote the book, The Activist Media Handbook. Uh, when we back, get back from the break and uh, go into these topics in much greater depth. So tune in or stay tuned and we'll be right back. to a climate change and this is matt matter and i've got david fenton who's a pr guru who's uh, written a book uh, the activist media handbook lessons from 50 years as a progressive agitator um david just before the break we were talking about uh, kind of a languaging problem uh for the environmental movement and and also the the failure to have conservatives that are environmentalists involved or getting their voices heard. I actually interviewed somebody last week, uh, Rex Paris, who's the mayor of Lancaster. He's a Republican and his entire city council in Lancaster are are Republicans. And they have created the first net zero city in the the U.S. and I believe potentially in the planet. Um, And his pitch has kind of been, yes, it's we've got a climate catastrophe coming but it's also good business sense for his for his city and they've got huge solar arrays they're working on hydrogen they have a um an electric bus manufacturing facility there and just done a tremendous amount of great work uh building homes that are um net zero things of this nature unfortunately uh, you don't see people like him kind of uh, front and center when you look on Fox News ever. So what can we do to get Rex on, you know, Fox News or someplace so that I think it would blow the minds of uh, a lot of uh, Republicans out there to see here, whoa, this guy's doing this stuff and he's making it work. uh, And he totally gets the climate science too. Lancaster, Pennsylvania. No, uh, California. It's a it's city uh-huh. about one hundred fifty thousand in northern LA County. Oh, I hadn't heard of that. That sounds terrific. <laughs> well, you know, um, you can buy ads on Fox News, and it's not that expensive. And I've been urging uh, people in climate philanthropy to do this. I mean, for example, <coughs> excuse me, in Washington D.C. Um, I asked people, how much do you think it costs to buy a 30-second ad on Fox News in Washington, D.C. to reach opinion makers and members of Congress and the media, et cetera? How much do you think it costs, Matt, to buy a 30-second ad on Fox in D.C.? Take a guess. I don't know, 3000 bucks. Oh, you're good. It costs $4,500. Most people answer that question with fifty dollars to $100,000. So we have the money to do things like this, but we don't do them. But uh, the fossil fuel industry does it because it values opinion forming, public relations, advertising, marketing, and propaganda, and uh, and we don't. So that's a big problem. Uh, you know, we live in a world where the media is very fractured, and so to get enough attention these days, it's hard to do it if you don't buy some of it, and that's anathema to a lot of liberals and progressives and philanthropists 
who again think that uh, you know great ideas magically work by themselves. So buying media, that sounds very slimy and manipulative. <laughs> but there's plenty that can be done. I mean, for example, most conservatives in this country, when they go online, which is where they get most of their news, all they ever see about climate change is it's a hoax. So why would we expect them to think anything else if that's their entire information flow? So I've done some ex measured experiments and bought climate videos into the social media feeds of conservatives uh, featuring conservatives who talk about how climate change threatens conservative values like freedom and prosperity and security. And uh, they work. Uh, you know, we published the results of this in peer-reviewed journals. We hired a Republican polling firm to measure the results. But it's very hard to get philanthropy to support this kind of activity, unfortunately. And you know, I would urge those listening, we really can reach more conservatives, and we have to. But we have a bigger problem, which is the, the language of the scientific community and the climate movement generally is pretty inscrutable to most people. You know, uh, you know most people don't know what uh, 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 net zero means. And they certainly don't know what an intersectional environmentalist means. <laughs> so what they do know is that they know what pollution is. And the thing about pollution is everybody not only knows what it is, but no one will defend it. Pollution is always bad. So this, this speaks to uh, cognitive and linguistic theory. So as we're exposed to language over the course of our lifetime, especially in childhood, it forms literal circuits in the brain. These are called frames. So when you want to communicate with people successfully, you want to use language that activates existing mental frames. So when you say pollution, everybody knows what you mean. That's activating an existing frame. When you say net zero, everybody goes, huh, what's that? <laughs> so um, so we really do have a problem uh, that the language is complex, and we also don't unify the language in our community, and that would give us a much more powerful echo chamber. You may notice that the, uh, the, the right and the fossil fuel industry, they always say the same things, and they say them over and over because they know that's how the brain learns. So this is a big problem for us. We also haven't established a simple explanation of what causes climate change in the public mind. As I said, most people will tell you it's the ozone hole or something. And we know what the most effective visual metaphor and language for this is, but we're not using it very much. And that is the concept of the blanket of pollution we have put around the earth that is trapping heat that used to go back out to space. And it's like when you were a kid and your father would put an extra blanket on you while you were sleeping and you'd wake up sweating. That's what we're doing to the earth. People understand that. And of course, as you trap all that heat energy, it has to go somewhere. So that's why the storms and droughts and fires and floods are getting worse, because that's a lot of energy. How much energy? Well, right now it's the same amount of energy as exploding a million Hiroshima-sized atomic bombs in the Earth's atmosphere, the very thin Earth atmosphere, every single day, a million H-bombs a day. 
Now, people can understand when you talk like that, and we don't enough. We're using very abstract concepts and scientific language and rhetoric. And, you know, I, I urge us, let's use kitchen table, simple language and images and all say the same thing. And we will raise the level of public knowledge and urgency, which will change the political dynamic in this country. Well, it's, it makes sense. So, uh, you know, on a practical level, uh, should we change the name of the show from a climate change to something like let's stop the pollution blanket or let's <laughs> I don't know about changing the name of the show, but I tell you a slogan I like a lot is we can change climate change. How's that? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or under the pollution blanket. That might be a good name. Sure. Or at least it's a, a, a tagline. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah. I mean, you know, when people don't have a visual metaphor for what we're doing. So, you know, I, I liken this to, I mean, look at the situation. So we have to transform the entire energy transportation built and agricultural environment and, and facilities and infrastructure of the entire world. We have to change the whole thing. Every car every plane, every factory, every motor, every house, it all has to be changed. So that's like mobilizing for war. So how are you supposed to mobilize the public for war if they don't know they're under attack? And they largely don't. So we need to get out of our bubble and make sure we're reaching the public repetitively. Well, I know that I, I picked up this from your from your website that this was your messaging strategy is to craft simple messages everyone can understand, speak to the heart first, the mind second, stories need good and bad characters, repeat, repeat, repeat your messages, practice framing your issues, use symbolism, tell the truth, ensure you're reaching people by using advertising, recruit celebrities, influencers, and cultural figures, fight falsehood and disinformation immediately. It's who you know. So is that a, a fair statement of, of uh, what you want us to do as uh, climate activists? Yes, 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 yes. Ensure we reach people. Don't hope we reach people. You know, the great thing about social media is you, you can ensure you reach people. You can know who you reach and you can measure what happens. So we need to be doing a lot more of that. We also need to use more celebrities and musicians and sports figures to help us communicate this and, and bring it more into the culture, which uh, uh, the great film director, Adam McKay, is now starting. And, and I'm privileged to be helping him. And we could talk about that, perhaps. Yeah, I definitely want to. We'll pivot to that as our next topic. Uh, so you're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Matter, and I've got David Fenton on the program. And uh, David is involved in working with Adam McKay, who did Don't Look Up with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. He's also uh, been involved in The Big Short, Anchorman, Stepbrother, and uh, many other great movies. So uh, let's, let's talk about that when we get back from the break.
You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, and I've got David Fenton, noted author and PR guru on the show. David, you worked with Adam McKay, and uh, who's done all these great movies. Uh, and uh, I, I saw one of the videos that was recently produced by, uh, by Yellow Dot, the Darth Vader spot praising Exxon, uh, where Darth says, uh, deeds so treacherous, I become envious. Uh, you know, I thought it was a brilliant spot. <laughs> yeah, great. Thank you. Yeah, uh, people can go to yellow.studios.com, yellow.studios.com to see the work that uh, Adam is producing with his team. Adam is, you know, completely dedicated on climate change. He knows how, you know, what a tough situation we're in. And he really wants to help us educate and wake up the public and uh, use a, a lot of these principles that we've been talking about. And, and you know, that Darth Vader spot is a part of what you have to do in good storytelling is stories need good characters and they need evil characters. And boy, do we have some evil characters on this issue. You know, I kind of think they might be the most evil characters who ever lived because imagine these executives at the oil, coal, and gas companies, they've known since the 70s, their scientists told them that, that their planets were going to cook, their products were going to cook the earth. In fact, they predicted almost exactly how much warming we would have right this year back then. So they've known all along and they purposely lied about it so that we wouldn't regulate them and phase out the dirty energy. This is all well-established fact. So Imagine what Shakespeare would do with a morality tale like that. People who would wipe out every living thing on earth in order to make money for 20 more years, knowingly. That's Exxon and Chevron and Shell and the Western States Petroleum Association. Yeah, pretty evil characters. And we don't really call them as such. So Adam is doing that. And uh, also, we're highlighting solutions and we're working with a number of celebrities you'll see more all the time and TikTok influencers to to work to teach people more about this issue and also to, you know, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. So we're using humor and satire, which is very important because, you know, psychologists have theorized that when you think about climate change, you use similar mental circuits as thinking about death and dying. And who wants to think about that? So get it using humor and pointing to the excitement of solutions is a very important part of the mix. So, you know, Adam and his team are, are planning to do all of this. So it's a very important, uh, you know, new entity in the climate field. And then they're also working with people with large social media followings to help distribute this material from them and from other uh, uh, climate movement groups. So I think you're going to see over the next uh, few months, more and more people with very large social media followings are getting involved in educating the public. I know there's a group of musicians and people in the music industry talking right now about helping to start a new musicians climate organization. And uh, I think, you know, the urgency of this is is really increasing participation. I was in New York a couple of weeks ago when the sky turned orange and it was terrifying. And it was accompanied by this weird 
low pressure system. There was this weird cold wind and the sky was orange. You really felt like you were in a sci-fi movie. And I think uh, a lot of media executives and celebrities in New York got really freaked out. Um, so I think you're going to see a lot more of this kind of activity. And Adam is leading the way. Bless him very much. Well, uh, tell us a little bit about your involvement uh, with Adam and, and what kinds of uh, things you're bringing to the table. I, I know you're, you're a humble guy who tends not to toot their own horn, but, uh, you know, please give us a few ideas of what you do in that process. Well, I'm an advisor. Um, you know, I'm, I'm suggesting ideas and, you know, being part of the creative brainstorms and, um, you know, looking out for the scientific accuracy of the material that we create, because, you know, one of the principles in my book is, you know, always tell the truth. We don't need to, and we never should distort it. We should simplify it, but you can do that accurately. So, you know, I'm basically a, a voice in the room, uh, suggesting ideas and providing feedback, but the project's being run by Adam and uh, a, a really fantastic uh, producer of his name, Stacy Robert Steeles, and uh, they're full time on this now. Yellow.studios.com. Please uh, join our list and help us uh, post and distribute the material. Yeah, it seems like it's getting it's off to a great start based upon all the views that I saw of the uh, Darth Vader spot, which was was fantastic. And uh, I agree with you that certainly humor just makes it something that's accessible and more likely to be shared with other friends and family members. When you see something like that Darth Vader spot, it's it's very easy to share it with somebody versus, as you said, using that similar mental circuitry for death and dying, which is kind of your your standard environmental spot. You don't get as many uh, listens or likes when you share that around with your friends and family. That's true. Well, Adam made a spoof of a Chevron commercial a few months ago. Did you see that? Yeah, I believe I saw that one. Did you see that one? Yeah, I saw that one too. Yeah, that got 8 million views in less than a week. And, um, uh, you know, we we were wondering if Chevron would come after us uh, for using their logo and spoofing their ad format. So, you know, when that happens, the lawyers will send you a thing called a cease and desist letter, right? So we were ready. We were going to send them, if they did that, a cease and desist polluting the planet letter. Yeah. But they didn't They didn't come after us. Yeah, they, they probably are smart enough to realize that uh, them coming after you, it's not going to help them. Like, they'd be better off kind of pretending you don't exist because all the publicity generated from that is going to be bad for them and good for you probably well we'll see how smart they stay yeah we'll, we'll see. see well keep baiting them you know you've got to, got to bait them more you were too nice to them the first time <laughs> don't worry there's more coming yeah well i i do uh, you know getting back to evil characters there's no doubt it is and it's unfortunate that i that most people in America would not know that Exxon had generated this report and knew that uh, their actions and the actions of other fossil fuel companies would cause the um, you know carbon CO2 levels to, to rise to 430 parts per million back uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago. 
And unfortunately, that message is not being communicated to the public. Why not? Well, again, the professional NGOs in the environmental field, they do a lot of great things. They do great law. They sue the government. They sue polluters. You know, they do great policy work. They do really important science work. But they're not, they don't do much communications work, uh, except to fundraise. So, you know, it's just not in their worldview. Again, these are policy people and scientists, and uh, they, they don't really invest in public knowledge and communications, and the other side does. You know, as Dr. Anthony Leiserwitz at the Yale Project on Climate Change Communication puts it, you know, we're in a propaganda war. The problem is there's only one side on the field. Now, it is improving. Um, there's a group called the Potential Energy Coalition of advertising agencies working on this problem, and they're doing great work. They help start a group called Science Moms, sciencemoms.com. And these are climate scientists who are mothers who talk about how they do what they do for their kids. And they've made very poignant, very heart-touching videos and ads using these science moms. And so that's, you know, attracting more and more support. And uh, I'm hoping that we're going to see more of that. Uh, and now there's Adam's project. There's another great project called The Years Project, which comes out of the TV show of a few years ago, the years of living dangerously they're doing fantastic video and work so there is more but there's not nearly enough yet i actually interviewed uh, the guy who was the founder of the sciencemoms.com and he uh, he was telling me about how his his son told him hey what are you doing about climate change and you know, he said, uh, not really a whole lot, recycling maybe or something. And he said, you're going to have to spend the weekend figuring out what you're going to do. And so he started calling up his friends and uh, came up with with this idea eventually. And so he's doing great work. And and quite frankly, he he was using the pollution blanket term that you're using. Uh, yeah. So it's not it's not surprising. Right, that the PR professionals are are getting it right, but somehow, like you need to have a confab with all the environmental groups, which are thousands of them. Because yeah. we we started working uh, with one percent for the planet, and they have just on their list of approved providers that they can you know will direct contributions to is forty eight hundred or fifty six hundred environmental groups. So there's just tons of them. Uh, so uh, have you touched base with 1% for the planet and talked to them about getting their message out to them? Not that group, but a lot of others. And I do work with John. Well, I'll have to, you know, get you in touch with them because uh, we need to get this message out a, a lot more widely. So you're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Matter, and I've got uh, David Fenton on the program. David is PR guru and author of the Activist Media Handbook. We are going to be right back in just one minute. listening to a climate change this is matt matter and i've got david fenton pr guru on the show today and uh, PR, um, 
David, if you could talk to us a little bit about what the solutions are out there and and in terms of communicating, should uh, we be focusing more on solutions? What's kind of the right weighting between uh, kind of the Darth Vader type ad and uh, focusing on the evil versus focusing on where we need to go? Well, the formula I like to use that the, the research uh, upholds is, uh, I call it two-thirds hope and one-third fear. So as we've discussed, people have to have hope because otherwise it's really hard to contemplate the devastation of unchecked climate change. So you have to have hope. At the, and you should. There's a we can solve this. It's a political uh, challenge, not a technological or economic challenge, really. At at the same time, you have to have some fear because without fear, there's not much urgency. And we're in a ridiculously urgent situation. We have to cut pollution globally in half in seven years, and we're nowhere near on track to do that. That's what the IPC scientists tell us we need to do. So, you know, I have friends who say, well, don't worry about climate change, you know, technology and the market's going to solve it. And they're right, it will, but by itself, it is very unlikely to solve it in time. You know, the the problem, as you know, is that the carbon uh, carbon pollution stays in the atmosphere for centuries or millennia. So it doesn't come down. You know, most people, when you say pollution, they think of a smokestack and the the smoke goes up and eventually comes down. This stuff does not come down on the human time frame. And there's already far too much of it in the atmosphere. And we're seeing the results in all this crazy extreme weather already. So it has to, we have to teach people that it's urgent because it is. But we also have to show people that it's solvable. Now, most people think that clean energy is more expensive than dirty energy. And that used to be true, and it isn't true anymore, but they don't know that. Uh, Clean energy is uh, properly financed. It's cheaper. You know, like even the Tesla Model Y now is the least expensive SUV in its category, not among electric cars, among all SUVs. And people don't know this yet. And when you add in all the savings and not having to buy gasoline and rarely if ever needing to service your car because electric cars don't need service departments which is upsetting all the auto dealers because they make a lot of money on their service departments so electric vehicles are already cheaper uh, to buy and operate and like i'm sitting in a house here in in uh, northern california that uh, i have essentially no electric bill And yes, there was an upfront investment to put up solar panels and super windows and buy an electric high efficiency heat pump and a heat pump hot water heater and do more insulation. But the loan I took out to do all that, uh, even when you pay back the loan payments, uh, that's cheaper than what my electric bill used to be. So I got immediate savings. And people don't know that this is available. In, In a lot of states now, I think it's 23 states, you can buy 100% clean energy through your utility for pennies more. And uh, you know this is something we really need to tell people about because the more demand for clean energy we create, the more of it will get built. 
So yeah, the, the, there's an enormous revolution going on in all of this, and it, and it's cheaper, and and it deploys faster, and uh, of course, the other thing about the sun and the wind is they can never go up in price. Isn't that nice? <laughs> and yeah. and, they, and at least on the time frame of humanity, they can never run out. I mean, in a few billion years, they'll run out, but not till then. So, right. you know, so we have a great story to tell. Cheaper, cleaner, better, safer, faster. So let's get on with telling it so that people want to do it. And of course, the Inflation Reduction Act has, you know, enormous incentives and rebates and tax credits in it to enable people to do this. But the research shows most people have not yet heard of Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. And when they hear about it, they're very skeptical that the government's going to give them money. So we need to work on that, too. I don't blame them for being skeptical. But in this case, it's true. The government's going to give you money to put solar on your roof and change your heating and cooling system to be much less polluting. And uh, so, you know, we have an enormous opportunity to tell this story. Yeah, it, you know, starting with the basics that uh, wind power is the cheapest form of cheapest way to create uh electricity out there i mean it's cheaper than than natural gas it's cheaper than coal it's uh so it's cheaper than nuclear so these this is something that i think the average person isn't aware of and unfortunately and so like you said a, a better job needs to be done communicating it um and in terms of the ira i mean it it's it's a fascinating political experiment because a lot of this money is going to uh, states that have normally voted uh, Republican and they're getting billions of dollars in clean energy money. And it's, I think, uh, w are we seeing it start to change the politics out there? And and uh, what would you say in terms of messaging to help break through to uh, get people who were uh, Republicans to kind of see the the benefits for themselves in clean energy? It's not changing the politics yet. You know, it just started. These, these, uh, you know, not not even all the rebates and tax credits have phased in yet. Um, so I think over time it will start to change it because people will see the benefits of this. Um, but we're in the early days of it, and we need to do a much bigger sales job, frankly, so that people know about the IRA and 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 start to take advantage of it. But I have no doubt that uh, over time, this will cons convince more people in red states that this is the future of energy and the future of manufacturing and the future of transportation. But there are going to be some holdouts, you know, like in Texas, they're passing laws saying that you can't use clean energy and you can't, you know, they're trying to discourage electrification of vehicles. And that is just uh, Neanderthal stuff, but that's because the fossil fuel industry totally dominates the Texas government. Um, so, you know, we have a long way to go down in places like Texas and Oklahoma and North Dakota and the fossil fuel producing states where people don't know that that just cannot and will not be their future. It just will what, not be. What's fascinating there is that Texas and Oklahoma get a fair amount of wind power. Uh, as does Iowa. I think Iowa gets more than forty percent or more from of their electricity from 
from wind, as does, I think, Kansas and a number of other states in the, the, the Great Plains area. That's true. So that's why, again, I think over time, the politics will start to change. But, you know, we have to tell this story more uh, to people. They don't really know. And then and there's another problem in the clean energy story, which is people say, oh, yeah, you know, the sun's great, the wind's great, but they're not reliable. The sun doesn't always shine. The wind doesn't always blow. And it's understandable that cognitively people would say that to themselves because it's true. But it's actually not true because the sun does always shine. The wind does always blow someplace. And with the right transmission, we can integrate it. And they always shine and always blow in a battery and in other forms of storage, which are becoming increasingly less expensive. Of course, energy efficiency is the greatest investment there is, and we're not investing in it enough. You know, the rates of return on investing in using less energy can be three to 500%. And many companies have done this, but we're just scratching the surface of it. <coughs> Solar, you know, is not all the way down its cost reduction curve. Um, it's going to keep getting cheaper. It's going to get so cheap that we're going to be able to overbuild it so that when it's cloudy out, you know, solar panels do produce electricity when it's cloudy. They just produce less. So we'll be able to overbuild it. But there's all this propaganda out there about this. For example, oh, we don't have enough land to solarize the country. Well, they don't mention we sure have enough rooftops. We sure have enough big box stores and warehouses. You know, the lies these people spread are kind of amazing. My favorite these days is all the whales being killed by offshore wind. Well, first of all, we hardly have any offshore wind. <laughs> and they don't kill whales. That's just nonsense. But, you know, Tucker Carlson will go, go to town on stuff like that. Well, thank God he's off the air. Well, I, I saw uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger at uh, an event here in uh, the port of L.A., a, a a few months ago and he was talking about the benefits of rooftop solar because they they put in a big installation there that is going to give power to 800 homes and saying that if we put rooftop solar on every uh, warehouse in california it would produce enough electricity for basically the entire state that to me is something that we should be focusing on going forward is putting more rooftop solar, particularly on commercial buildings, but also on, on residential dwellings. Uh, of course, there's a lot of pushback from the utility industry on that front, but uh, uh, it's been great having you on the program, David. Uh, David, uh, author of the Activist Media Handbook, Lessons from 50 Years as a Progressive Agitator. Uh, Please go out and buy David's book. It's a great one, as well as uh, tune in to our uh, uh, climatechange.com. Look at us or listening to us on Spotify and Apple Music, as well as uh, any other channels out there that uh, we're on social media. Please tune in to uh, David's channels, as well as the Yellow Dot, which uh, Adam McKay is doing. Great stuff there. So uh, pleasure having you on the program, David, and look forward to working with you uh, going forward to hone our message so that we can be uh, more effective communicators. I'm happy to help and thanks for having me.